I'm now going to speak to you on the stature of Christ. That's my title today. You won't understand the whole sermon just from that. But the stature of Christ, for you note-takers, do you really intend, think about this, brethren, I'm asking you to think, do you really intend to fulfill the purpose for which God made you, the purpose for which you're alive, the purpose for which you are drawing breath right now? We are put here on this earth, all of us, for a supreme purpose. We're made in the image of God and given a godlike mind where we can discern good from evil and choose to do the good and resist the evil. But all through our church, we have many people who, of course, are not resisting the evil very much. Some of our people, many of our younger people are getting into, of course, various forms of illicit sex, drinking, drugs, all kinds of things. It's terrible. Some of our older people as well. This got to be rampant in the worldwide church of God before God brought it down and caused it to split, so to speak, caused it to come apart. But we must not play games. We're not here to play church. We're here to fulfill the purpose of God, I hope. God and Christ have a plan for your future, all of us, and my future. Christ came down to die to help us fulfill that purpose. He gave his life. And we're going to picture that in the upcoming Passover to reconcile us to the great Creator so we could have God's help. We could have God's Spirit. We could fulfill that purpose if, if, the biggest two-letter word in the English language, as many have said, if we're willing, if we really will go out to do our part. Are you truly committed to do your part? Think about what I'm going to be reading now. Let's turn to the gospel of the book of John. The gospel of John, and I'm going to be reading here in the very first chapter. John chapter 1, verse 1. This goes way back even before Genesis 1, 1, as Mr. Armstrong used to explain. In the beginning, we don't know what that was, as I've explained, some of the so-called Bible believers say that was 6,000 years ago. Well, it was not. No doubt it was much before that, millions or perhaps billions of years, as they say. In the beginning was the Word, the Word is Lagos, spokesman, it can be translated as what it really means, a revelatory principle. And this spokesman was with God, with God the Father, and the spokesman, the second person in the God family, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. God made everything, everything through Jesus Christ. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, through his power, his wisdom. And the world did not know him. He came to his own. He came to the Jewish people and his own did not receive him. What did they do? Some of you might think, well, why are we unpopular? Why does the whole world believe what we say? Did the whole world believe God himself when God came down in the human flesh? No, they killed him. God came down himself and they killed him. They crucified him. And we're about to observe the memorial of that in a few weeks. His own did not receive him. They crucified him instead. But as he, as many as received him to those few who were willing... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And brethren, we are to become full children of God. 
God's not playing around. He's not just using sentimental language, as most of you know. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we're to, of course, become very God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we're to share all of us, if we make it, in that very glory. That's the whole thing. That's why we're here. Turn now to chapter 17, John chapter 17. And as you know, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Verse 1, Jesus' final prayer, as far as a full prayer. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to the heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. So he wanted us to be glorified, and he wanted, of course, God to glorify him, because he is the first of the first fruits, setting an example for us. As you've given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life uh, to as many as you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's interesting the way it's worded there, isn't it? This is eternal life. If we really know God and know Christ, we don't know them unless we walk with them. We don't really know them unless they're living within us, as so many other scriptures tell us. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the very glory which I had with you before the world was. That awesome glory. He was the one who said, let there be light. And there was light. He's the one who created everything. The total power of God was present in him. And so he said, give me back that same glory. But in verse 20, after praying for his disciples, he said, I do not pray for these alone, that is his disciples right there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That means us. We believe through these words, hopefully that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also will be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And brethren, we are to be one with God as Christ is one with God. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, not some lesser glory, that very glory, the supreme glory of the divine power, the creator of the universe that they all may be one just as, not some lesser oneship, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them, again, not in some lesser way. He loved Christ and made him a full son of God with total power. Does he love us in some lesser way where he makes us nice puppy dogs by comparison? And we go up to heaven kind of wagging our tails and playing on harps but have no power, nothing to do. No! Glorify them as you have glorified me, Jesus is saying, in the same way. And Christ was God. And so we know that is God's will. That's our ultimate purpose for being, to be like God in every way and to be a full member, a full member of the divine family. Can we really grasp that? I doubt if any of us do fully, but I hope we can more and more as we think about it, meditate about it, 
go through suffering to achieve it. Go through trials and tests and ups and downs and hang on to God. Like even Jacob had to hang on, so to speak, as he literally wrestled with God and came out a victor in that way. In that particular test God put him through, which was most unusual, but nevertheless a very genuine test that he went through at that time. Turn to Romans 7, if you would, brethren. Romans chapter 7. Here the Apostle Paul ties in with this. Therefore, brethren, he writes, verse 12, Romans 7, verse 12, we are debtors. Our responsibility, our job, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We're not debtors to do that. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Is living according to the flesh uh, being unusually evil, being a Hitler or a Mussolini or a you know, some terrible person. No, living according to the flesh is the normal, human, carnal, fleshly way that most people live. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. And obviously the emphasis is eternal death. We're all going to die physically if we continue in this age. But if by the Spirit you put to death, through the power of God's Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. But brethren, it doesn't say you're just to have the Spirit of God. You are to be led by. Get this. Led by the Spirit of God. That's the difference. Some people have had God's Spirit, but they just court of regress and kind of walk along and they're floating down the stream. They're not fighting vigorously to go upstream, to overcome, to grow. And they become very weak. They either don't have God's Spirit or God's Spirit is like a very little flicker. It's not a burning fire within them at all. So God tells us we're to be led by that Spirit. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. And the Greek word here is just as adequately translated sonship as a number of Greek scholars and commentaries acknowledge. We're not making that up. Just look it up. A number of commentaries show that. Greek scholars, they know that. And certainly when you understand God's plan, that's what it must be translated. Sonship. You have received the spirit of sonship. Full sons of God. Wherein we cry, Abba, Father. He puts an Aramaic word in here that means daddy. A personal, intimate word. Daddy, Father. And we're to have that deep, personal, intimate feeling to God as we walk with God, talk with God, commune with God, fellowship with God, and fellowship with Christ. Drinking into this Word, praying two, three, five times a day on our knees, communing with God constantly, being aware hour by hour that we're to live in Him and He's to live in us. This is what we've got to learn to do, brethren. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit, our human Spirit, the mind, that part of the mind which we call the spirit, which is the spirit, a spirit essence, joined with our human brain, that we are the children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Are we heirs of some lesser something? No. No, we're heirs of exactly what he's to be heir. Yes, he'll always be the older brother. Yes, he'll always be the high priest. The rest of the Bible makes that clear. But we're not to be dogs or goats or donkeys or cows down here. And Christ is up here and God's way up here in a different level. No, we're to be on the same level, 
joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, and certainly involves that, brethren, as you know. We do go through the trials and tests. Mr. Davis commented on that. If God does not chasten you, then you're not a full son of God. God rebukes and chasten every son He loves, not those He hates, those He loves for our good. And many of us have been through various types of chastisement for decades. And God has to work with us and work with us and work with us. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together, made full spirit sons of God at the God level of existence. As I've explained, there is the mineral kingdom, the rocks and the dirt. Then there's the vegetable kingdom, the plants and flowers and so on. Then there is the animal kingdom above that. Then there's the human kingdom. And then there's the angel kingdom. And above all things, the very top level is the kingdom of God. Those who are spirit beings in the very family of God. That's awesome to think about. We're going to bypass the angel kingdom when we are born of God. We will be taken directly from the human level to the divine level if, again... We yield ourselves, surrender, cry out to God, surrender our hearts and minds and wills to God in a remarkable way. Through the help of God's Spirit, then He'll give us that kind of glory. And we'll be put way above the angels, and they will be our servants. They're already our servants, even more so in tomorrow's world, in the resurrection. So if we suffer, we may be glorified together. Not some lesser glory, but together with Christ. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the trials, the tests, the agony, the heartache, the long months or years sometimes you're put down and you wonder, you wonder, why are you allowing this, God? And sometimes later on you realize why God did allow it. And you realize you're better off for it, even if it took years. And many of us have had experiences like that, where it was years before the delivery came. And yet God always answered if we were trying to learn the lesson if we were trying to learn the lesson sincerely. Maybe he would have intervened sooner if we learned the lesson sooner too. We need to realize that as well. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There's just no comparison. Brethren, anything we have in this life, if you're a leading member of the church, some of you, and some of you out there in TV land or who are recording this for you, of course, If you're a deaconess, you're a deacon, you're a head deacon, you're an elder, you're a head elder, you're a leading elder, you're a minister. And boy, that's great stuff. No, not really. Not really. As I've told you, I used to think it was very important, the ones, you know, those who got to be the president of the student body of Ambassador College. And Mr. Ames was a student body president, and I was, and different ones of us. But you look at the list of all those fellows, and most of them left the church. You look at the list of the vice presidents. You look at the picture of the Council of Evangelists, which I have. It's kind of sad. Most of them left the real, true church of God. It's pitiful. God is testing and testing and testing. And if those big shots left, where does that leave you and me? We have to constantly be alert and be willing to totally surrender to God, to be constantly trying to think, how can I do better? What is the real, genuine, perfect will of God for me? Not what are my friends doing, not where is it most comfortable, 
not where is it most convenient. I know when one of the groups split off, their leaders told the men, now if you come with us, you will have the same standard of living you have before. And they told, I have talked to four or five of our men who were told that directly. That's what they were told. When we first started the global and now living church of God, we didn't think that at all. As you know, we just did not before that was the last thing in our mind. I told Cheryl we might have to live in a trailer house. I don't mean a big mobile home. I mean, I told her just a trailer house or a tent. We've got to be willing to do what God says. Many people are not willing to do that. They want to do what's convenient. And then they'll wait around and wait around and wait around and then finally do what's comfortable or convenient. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory. No, having this human glory in this world, whatever it is, is nothing. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The whole creation is crying out. As you know, the waters are being polluted. The air is being polluted. The whole world is being torn up. Animal populations and whole species are dying out because of what man is doing. And it's figuratively crying out for the revelation of the sons of God, where God and His sons will straighten out this world totally in tomorrow's world in the kingdom of God. And then the desert will bloom like the rose, and the water, the rains will come in due season once again. God will literally put a whole new layer of soil, no doubt, all over the Middle East, which is just torn to bits. When I first took my wife Cheryl down to the Middle East, we came from from uh, Texas at the time. That's right, we're in East Texas. And she said, Rod, this is like this nation of Israel. And we thought it was so wonderful. I'd been there before, but she, she expected it to be just beautiful, I guess. She, she said, this is a pile of rocks. <laughs> a pile of rocks. <laughs> I said, well, no, honey. There are a lot of beautiful places here and there. But, you know, if you compare it with East Texas and all the trees and the flowers and the plantings and all, it's just dry as a bone and rocks and stuff everywhere and very dry. And each year goes on and sort of gets worse in that way as God intervenes. Although they got some of the areas going that used to be dry, and they did a good job comparatively in certain areas. But basically, it looks pretty awful compared to East Texas or Charlotte, North Carolina, <laughs> or places like we're used to here. The creation is waiting for that. He says down in verse 28, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. All things work together for good. But it doesn't say for everybody. A lot of people say, well, how, how can this tsunami out there? Well, even that will work for good in the sense it helps those people eventually be humble and look to a Creator and all that. But it, makes, it basically means those who love God... Most of those people don't even know God. You've got to be realistic when you apply these verses. Read all the words in the verse, not just some of them, sentimentally like the world does. To love God means you'll keep His commandments. This is the love of God, that you keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous or burdensome. 1 John 5, 3. Those who love God and those who are called. That's all of us. If we're called and our mind is truly opened according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew as He looked down as you were born, and perhaps even before you were born. He told some of His servants, I knew you while you were yet in the womb. An unborn baby in the womb is not a blob of flesh to have its skull crushed 
and abortion. It's a human being made in the image of God. And that's murder to kill that unborn child. Murder. Women can choose. They're free. How wonderful. They can choose to be a mother or they can choose to be a murderess. There's a choice. Do you want to be a a mother or a murderess? So this is a very important thing to understand. He called us, He predestined us, us, those whom He called, He justified in His purpose, made us right with God. Those whom He justified, He glorified in His plan. He has already purposed that we will be glorified spirit beings in the very family of God. And that's awesome. What can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God's going to give us every help, and we want to realize that and have confidence and great and be faithful to that. But nevertheless, we know we have our part to do, and brethren, we've got to. And I want us to realize, because many of us in the church are not doing our part as we should. And as we think about the Passover coming, and some of you will receive this after the Passover, that's fine. This is for all of us all year long. We've got to do our part. He tells us, as we've already seen back here, that we are to be sons of God, and uh, it says uh, uh, that we're to call God Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, because He is our real Father. We come right out from Him. As you turn back, if you would with me now, to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John uh, chapter 2 at this point. I want to cover something on that here for a moment. 1 John 2. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 28. The aged apostle John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, when Christ comes, which is coming soon, then we may be, have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If we have not fully tried to do what God really indicates, if we've been compromising, It's not pleasant to hear that. I know some of us are compromisers, so it's not fun to hear about it. But it's good. Sometimes good, strong medicine is good for us, but it doesn't taste good at the time. So if we've been compromising, we may not be so happy. But if we have been serving God, we have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is begotten of Him. And brethren, through this whole passage, the Greek word coming from ganao is the one used, of course, meaning beget or, you know, ganao means creative, coming out of to generate, literally. So it usually should be translated begotten, not born. He who practices righteousness, that's the whole thing through here, not just he who knows about it, but he who does it. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. See, they don't know, and we don't know yet fully, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. We will really be like Christ. His face shines like the full sun, and our face will shine like that as well. We shall be like Him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, this is a magnificent hope. Everyone who has that real hope purifies himself just as he is pure. As I've said, 
We don't want to be nicey-nice and pure just because God is an old grandfather and He doesn't want us to have fun. Some young people kind of take it that way, and that's not the purpose at all. God is the one who created wine, and He says, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake, and shows it can be used rightly. God is the one who's created our taste buds and the wonderful food He's provided, the beautiful mountains and valleys and, and the vast oceans and the desert islands and the beautiful things to see and explore all over the world. He made that. God made us male and female, and He's not against sex in marriage in the right way and love. Where it's, it's good that today, tomorrow, next day, next year, next decade, the next century, or went 10 million years from now, you can look back with joy and think, God gave me a beautiful wife, and we lived together and shared that, and your husband the same way, your wives, and could be grateful that you used that gift of God the right way. First command He ever gave human beings, be fruitful and multiply. And replenish the earth. That's the first thing he told Adam and Eve. He's not against anything good. As Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to explain. Sin is not a thing. Sin is the wrong use of a thing. The wrong use of sex. Really does hurt and destroy and tear down. In so many ways. The wrong use of liquor. The wrong use of gunpowder. The wrong use of all kinds of things can destroy But God is good, and God wants us to use things for good. So, God wants us to be pure. And if we have that hope of becoming very God, we will want to be pure in every way in God's sight. And now let's go down, if you would, at this point to uh, uh, verse 9 here. Whoever has been begotten of God, and it should definitely be translated begotten, does not sin. And brethren, through this whole passage, as some of the commentaries bring out, and some translations even have it, it's kind of the present progressive here. It is talking about does not practice sin. See, it's an ongoing thing. Whoever has been begotten of God does not practice sin. The Williams translation is one that has part of this translated correctly. For instance, he was recognized as a good top Greek scholar. For his seed... And as you remember, the very word sperm is used in here. Sperma. God's very nature comes right out from God as the human sperm comes right out from a husband and unites with the female ova and makes a human being. And we come right out from God. We're not adopted like a goat or a cow and God then calls us a son. No, we come right out from God. We bear His very nature. We have the very seed of God in us. That's how we can change. And we're supposed to use that seed. We're supposed to use that spirit to become fully like God. His sperma remains in him, as the Greek is here. And he cannot sin or practice sin. You see, you cannot practice sin and keep that very nature of God. God will remove his spirit if you practice sin. That's the one unforgivable sin. If you sin willfully or deliberately after you've received the knowledge of the truth and begin to sin regularly, intentionally, He cannot sin because he's been begotten of God. Now, we used to understand this as meaning those who are already born of God, and that's untrue. We've come to realize, and I've gone through that with the Council of Elders, and I came to realize it in a very deep study. So some of you out there constantly want new truth. Well, here's some new truth we've learned over the last several years. If you want new truth. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. In this, in this very thing, you see. It's not talking about those who are already spirit beings. It's talking about people right here 
right now. That's what he's obviously talking about. How can you tell who's converted and who's not converted? The one who practices righteousness is the Son of God. And a person comes to church, but he regularly lies. He regularly drinks too much. He regularly does this or that. Well, you may not hate him. You want to be patient with him. God may still be calling him, and maybe he'll shake him up and bring him to real repentance eventually. But he may not be converted at all. And sometimes I know that. I knew certain people in Pasadena for decades, and I realized they were not converted at all. I just knew that. I would tell some few others that, and so it turned out that way. One time, Mr. Armstrong assumed a couple of deacons were really converted, and I explained to him, well, Mr. Armstrong, they're really not converted, and I love them, and I like them, and I spent time with them, and so on. And I, he said, what makes you think that, Rod? And I said, well, you could talk to them, try to talk to them about the Bible, and they'd just sort of look puzzled or turn and walk away or all kinds of things. I don't want to go through it all of and identify it further than that. It was very obvious because he often, in those days, mistook personal loyalty to him for conversion. And you could be personally loyal to Mr. Armstrong, or you could be personally loyal to me, for that matter, and you would not be converted. Convert means change. And if a person is changed, he will be glad to talk about the Bible. He will be glad to talk about prayer. He will be glad to talk about fulfilled prophecy. He will be changing and growing and growing. And the other kind of person will not be doing any of those things. So it's pretty obvious in this, in this whole matter of God's very seed being in us, the children of God, you see, in this life, and the children of the devil are manifest. It's shown. Whoever does not practice And here it is correctly translated even in the New King James Version, which some of you have in front of you. So here it is. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not uh, of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. If you don't love your brother, you're not of God. If you constantly hate people, you look down on them, you're fighting them, you're trying to get them, you won't forgive them, then you're not of God. And that's a very obvious fruit. That is there. And God tells us that in quite a number of places, in fact, in 1 John and elsewhere in the Bible as well. So we must reflect God and we must reflect Jesus Christ because the very sperm of God, the very seed of God, the very nature of God must be in us if we are really sons of God, begotten sons, and later to be born of God. That's very important to understand. We've got to reflect God in Christ in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions. More and more every single year we live. Now, we may not make great progress every week or every month, but generally each year you would make some progress, obviously, if you're converted. And we all need to think about that. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, brethren, is another key point here along this line. 1 Peter Chapter 1. Let me get a little bit of this tea again. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, although I'll skim some here at first. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion. God's people were scattered by this time and persecuted, running, being run from city to city. And Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, and so on. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us. And it is correctly translated. He has begotten us. 
Same word. Sometimes these very translators translate it, you know, look it up in an interlinear. Same word if you can read even a little bit of Greek. It all comes from ganao, or various forms of the word ganao, G-E-N, generate, bring forth, activate, generate, bring into being. So they translate it here, begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, incorruptible, a magnificent inheritance that will never fade away, reserved in heaven. Is it going to stay there? Do we go there to get it? No, we come back down here, as dozens of scriptures tell us. That is, the the reward comes here. Christ will bring our reward. His reward will be with him, it says in, uh, I think it's uh, Revelation 20, verse 12. But he this reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, our former association said you're already saved now. Well, you are in one sense. You're saved from your past sins. But the full salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. When Christ comes and God makes you spirit. That's the ultimate salvation. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved or as the margin puts it, distressed by various trials. Have you had various trials? Probably every one of you has. Does that mean you're not God's servant? No. It probably means you are God's servant, although that alone does not prove it at all, because the whole world is suffering most of them. But that might be a, a proof, of course, if the trial is teaching you lessons. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire. Think about that. Your faith is tested by fire. Fiery trials coming on you and on me. Why? God's not going to let us sort of mosey our way into kingdom, into glory and power and majesty, and we just sort of float along and take it easy and we're lukewarm and have a nice social club calling it the church of God. No, he's not going to let that happen, brethren. He cannot. He allowed Satan the devil to have power for a while. Luckily, not the total power. When his name was called Lucifer, Lightbringer, one of the three top spirit beings he'd ever created, Lucifer, Michael, and Gabriel. But it didn't work. He turned away from God. And so he had to take him out. No, God's not going to let that happen. Give us that kind of supreme, ultimate glory unless we've passed various tests. And so our, our faith is like gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation, at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So we have that wonderful opportunity, whom having not seen we love, Receiving the end of our faith, the salvation of our or your souls, he writes, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. The prophets of old who prophesied of the grace that would come, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, Christ's Spirit was in them in the Old Testament, was with them in them, who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Of course, the most complete chapter on that is Isaiah 53, which is good reading just before the Passover. Isaiah 53, written about 700 years before Christ came and did all these things. To them it was revealed that not to our themselves, but to us they were ministering the things now reported 
through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Again, brethren, our reward is just awesome. And even the magnificent spiritual hosts of the angels in heaven sense what's happening. I don't know how fully they understand it, because it says they desire to look into that. They can sense that God is preparing us for something awesome. And they are training and working with us and protecting, not training so much, but helping us, protecting us as future sons of God. And they begin to realize something awesome is happening here. And angels desire to look into these things, the ultimate outcome of the gospel, that God is reproducing himself. The ultimate good news. What's bigger news than that? (laughs) That God is reproducing himself and we can have that kind of future. Really? Yes, really. That is the good news and ultimate. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Get your mind alert. Think about these things. Meditate on these things. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace. Grace means, of course, mercy, gift, the wonderful gift that is to be brought to you. You don't go up to heaven to get it. It's brought to you at the revelation or the appearing of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, yes, we've got to be obedient. Not conforming yourself to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. Did you used to watch 10 or 15 or maybe even 35 hours of television before you were converted every week? Stop it. Don't do it anymore. Cut it way back. It's Satan's broadcasting system. Apart from the news or some presidential speech or an occasional sports event or something that's clean, just don't let your mind soak that stuff up. That's one thing that's wrecked our whole society, frankly. I've explained that many times. Television and the Internet, where they punch a button and they can see every form of perversion right in front of their eyes. These young fellows, as they work with computers and so on, is a terrible thing. Never available before. I'm glad it wasn't when I was growing up. I didn't have any such opportunity. Get rid of it. Get it out of your house if you have to. So try to be not going according to your former lusts. But as he has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Brethren, that is a tremendous challenge if you think about it. Be or become holy as I am holy. As you know, Jesus said near the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew 5:48, Become ye therefore perfect, perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be holy, for I am holy. You can't water things down. And there's so many ways that we do that. I'm going to emphasize certain aspects of it, but we could go on and on with that, of course, which we do through the whole year, helping us to learn to reflect God more. But we've got to really think about that and set a high standard for ourselves. If you had set a low standard, you're not going to get up there where God wants you to be. So God is continually testing us before this glory, and we become holy as God is holy as we grow and overcome And the divine family requires, get this, the divine family of God requires this kind of holiness. Now, the Protestants will say, well, you're trying to earn your salvation. No, depends on how you word it. They have a clever way of wording things. Their whole frame of reference is wrong in the first place. I may preach a whole sermon or have a whole booklet on that later. 
Their whole frame of reference is they, they have their frame and our ideas don't fit in their frame because their frame doesn't fit into God's frame, frankly, at all. You don't just be good and accept Christ and float off to heaven. They don't grasp that God is producing spirit beings with character to rule the universe. So therefore, they think, well, you can accept Christ and then you float off. It doesn't require anything. But if you're doing something else, which they don't understand, if God is trying to produce spirit beings to help him rule the universe, then just having a sentimental acceptance of their idea, not the true idea, but their idea of the person of Jesus does not qualify you for that at all. God's frame of reference is that he forgives you if you really repent. That's the big if. They leave out the word repentance or what it really means. If you really repent and say, God, I'm surrendering to you. I'm sorry, terribly sorry, and so sorry I'm going to turn around and go the other way with the help of God. That's repentance. Then you're saved in the sense that you are forgiven your past sins and you're reconciled to God. That part of salvation they partly understand, not fully. Next, as your New Testament explains many times, you are being saved, being active, progressive. You are growing in grace and in knowledge. And finally, if you overcome and make it to the end, as Jesus said in Matthew twenty-four twelve, he who endures, he who endures, growing and overcoming to the end, will be saved. You're not saved ultimately until you're made spirit. Then you can't fall away anymore. You have the very nature of God born into you then. And you cannot sin because God cannot sin at that point. So we want to think those things through. As he who called you is holy, be you holy in all, everything you think, everything you say, everything you do. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. That's what God tells us, brethren. Will God give unlimited power and glory to those who compromise, you know, willfully and continually? Think about that. Is he going to do that? Does anything in the Bible indicate that he's going to do that? Or if they're in some part of God's church that continually compromises, he may love them if they're keeping part of his commandments part of the time to some extent. Then maybe the other factor comes in. He will rebuke and chasten every son he loves And so they may have to go through the tribulation or before the tribulation if they're very sincere. Some people out there or some of our people are Laodiceans. Some of you out there on TV land watching me are compromisers. I know that. You're Laodicean. And if that's the way you live, I can't help you by telling you, well, you're good and you're fine and just think positive thoughts and you'll all be in God's kingdom. Isn't that sweet? Well, it may sound sweet, but it's not going to help you to say that. You've got to quit compromising. You've got to quit watering things down. Be you holy, for I am holy. God says. God commands. He's not going to let compromisers float into his kingdom. Think about those who water things down in their doctrines as well as in their way of life. Think about those who join fringe groups and refuse to be part of the work that Jesus Christ is doing today. There are many fringe groups. It really hurt me when this journal thing out of Big Sandy, some others give it a different name, but they were explaining that there are over 300 groups, splits, calling themselves Church of God, over 300 groups split off from the original Worldwide Church of God under Mr. Armstrong. But you know they were right. 
I haven't counted all 300, but as they hear about more and more, and I've heard about some more even in the last couple of weeks, they're just all over the place. This man gets the idea, well, I'll, you know, I don't agree with this group or that, or I don't agree with Mr. Meredith, or I don't agree with Mr. Ames, or I don't agree with the, the living church because they're too strict, or, or they said this or that, or they don't believe in the sacred names, or they don't uh, do some little thing, whatever it is, just the way I think. And they pick on various things, and so I will go out, and I will start a different group out here. Oh, really? You say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, everything is wrong with that. Everything. How could God Almighty trust people who are ready to just take things into matters into their own hand and rush off here and there? Or is a deeply converted person one who, after the apostasy took over the worldwide church of God and they became completely apostate, and are not part of any branch of God's church anymore. And in fact, they're even changing their name, as you know. Within the next few weeks or months, they've already let the people know their new name. They're going to have a new name. It won't be Worldwide Church of God anymore. They don't believe in that. They've tried to stamp out every single vestige of everything that Mr. Armstrong ever did, or that Christ did through his servant, his apostle, Mr. Armstrong. And some of the men around the campus told one of my sons that, he knew them, he used to work with them, and said, well, they're even tearing out this stream. They don't want anyone to be reminded that Mr. Armstrong put this nice stream in that used to go between the library and the dormitories across the way. They've taken out the names written in there in the cement where Herman Hay and, and uh, Raymond Cole and Dick Armstrong and Betty Bates all had their names, the pioneer students. They didn't want that around. They don't want anything around them that reminds them of God, the real God, and God's true servant on the earth. So they stamped it all out, everything. And so when many of you came to realize, you didn't fully realize, as I did, because you weren't there. It's not your fault. I was right there and saw a lot of that. But you know you had to leave. But a lot of people didn't leave. They waited for years and years. Then they finally left. Or then I may stayed around. Then they're going with all these other fringe groups. And why did you follow the global church of God if you came with us before living began? Why? Think about it. Perhaps most of all, you saw that the full truth was going to be preached. You saw that as we started out. We were going to preach what Mr. Armstrong preached, but we said we will certainly improve. We'll try not to make his mistakes. We'll probably make some of our own, of course, which we do. But we're going to try to follow the full truth of God, not water things down. And you have seen that. We are going to preach the gospel as a witness to all the world, to all the nations like Mr. Armstrong did, and follow that pattern and that command of God and the true name of Jesus Christ, the whole concept of salvation and what it's all about, and preach the end-time prophecies in the Ezekiel warning. God commands us to do that too, and we're doing that. Other groups are nice people, but they're not doing all those things at all, at all. Thirdly, we were going to carry on the government of God. The same kind of hierarchical, patriarchal is a good way to put it too. We may need a new booklet on that. We're not just hierarchical, but patriarchal. The husband is the head of the family, and Christ is the head of the church, and it flows right down in that particular way, more like a family relationship. And yet it's both patriarchal and hierarchical, but it's all through the Bible, with no exception in the Bible, no exception ever. That's the way God always did things, and that's what we're being prepared for in tomorrow's world. We're to preach the government of God. We're not play-acting. It's something that's a very vital part of the gospel, the gospel of the government 
or kingdom of God. That's what it's all about. Of course we've got to do that. Those who don't do that are in terrible trouble with God. Made them feel very guilty about it. When they're having voting in some of these groups, some of their elders won't even vote. They have to plead with the elders in their meetings, please vote so we have enough to count it as a quorum and count the vote. Because even their ministers know it's wrong, so they don't want to vote. But we're doing those three things. We're the only church on earth that's doing all three of those things the way Mr. Armstrong did. I mean that. Most of you know that or you wouldn't be here. But you've got some guy goes and says, well, I want to have sacred names or I want to observe new moons tomorrow or I want to say this or that or change this or that. So I'm going to go off here and there. What does that remind you of? Does that not remind you of Lucifer? Well, I'll go over here. I'll do my thing. That's the spirit of Satan the devil. People like that can't be in God's kingdom. You say, Mr. Meredith, are you condemning them all to hell? No, I'm not. I'm saying that God will have to work with them. (laughs) And God may work with them, of course, in a very severe manner. If He has to, if they'll repent sooner, that's fine. Some of them may be given this sermon, wake up. I hope they will. But if they won't wake up, then He will simply put them in the tribulation. They will be humbled and shaken to the roots of their being, and then it will all begin to come back. And maybe they will be willing to listen at that time and preach properly the kingdom of God, the government of God, God's way of government, to do the real work of God, reaching all nations through television, radio, the printing press, every way, putting their resources in that, putting their mouth their actions where their mouth is, and so on. All that type of thing. That's what God wants. That's what He's watching. He's testing us. He's testing our groups. These people need to, as you have done hopefully, and some of you may still be here visiting, but you need to spend the time. Eternal life should be so important to you that you're willing to spend the time and mental energy thinking through these things I'm talking about and going with the right church in the right way, at the right time, for the right reason. And not just floating off with your friends and having a nice social club. One man in the Midwest got off on some little point. I can't even remember what it was so small. And he just put himself on the Internet. He was just a working man, never went to college, doesn't understand how to be a leader or minister. But he's got, I guess, a couple, three dozen or maybe a couple hundred people kind of following him who hear him. What good is he doing? He's not doing any good. All he's doing is disturbing the work of God and taking people away who could be learning the lessons in a Bible group that Christ is using, you see. So some of you perhaps noticed that we were doing all three things. Maybe some of you and some of you brethren out there noticed. And we don't want to blow our horn because we're all very weak. But you may have noticed when Global started that we had some of the older men who helped build the work of God right along with Mr. Herbert Armstrong, like Mr. Apartian, like Mr. Carl McNair, and at first even Mr. Raymond McNair, Mr. Sidney Hegbold, Dr. Lynn Torrance, who worked with Mr. Armstrong in the college and imperial schools, and, you know, other men like that. Mr. Dick Ames, who was on the program and worked with Mr. Armstrong, and myself, who worked with him, very intimately, frankly, from about 1953 on. We work with him. We help build the work of God back then. And they sense that. As Dr. Winnell may have told you in sermons, he asked, and he's mentioned this to me a number of times, as he was considering what to do, he said, where are all the teachers? 
because he was a teacher, of course. He said, where are the teachers? Well, the teachers either stayed there and sat on their hands, some of them, and weren't, weren't, didn't have the courage or understanding to do anything. But of the teachers who left, the vast overwhelming majority, way beyond all the other groups put together, went with the global and now living Church of God. That's where they went. When I named all these men I've named, plus others beside who were teachers and leaders in the work who came with us. We work with Mr. Armstrong. And so that's a sign, if you want to. We're the ones who faithfully followed the Apostle Paul later. The ones that people ought to follow. Yes. We're the ones who followed the Apostle John after he died. The ones who ought to have been followed later. You know, like Polycarp and Polycrates. Yes. Same thing with Mr. Armstrong. Not that he's perfect. Not that I'm perfect. None of us are perfect. Certainly not me. But those fruits are there. They're fruits you need to consider. And you brethren around the world. You just go off with Joe Blow because he comes up with a new idea. You better not. You better not. Because you'll be just taking yourself out of the living church of God. And you'll be taking yourself out of the active body of Christ that's doing God's work. And you'll not be learning the lessons. You'll not be learning to be part of a team. You say, well, in the church of God, I may get correction. Yes, you will. Does God want you to get correction? Yes. Does He want you to get instruction? Yes. Does He want you to learn to submit yourself one to another and be part of a team? So where the captain of the, of the, the, of the you know, unit says, the regiment or whatever it is, says about face, you about face. And you don't say, well, yes, but... Well, if the captain says, let's go into apostasy, then you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, and you go respectfully. And if he keeps on saying, let's go into apostasy, that's different, as we found, you know, under Mr. Dukat. Then you have to obey God rather than man. But as long as the captain of the team is preaching the truth, doing the work, carrying on the government of God in the correct manner, not perfectly, none of it's perfect, but trying and growing, then you better follow. You follow the light. And the pillar of fire by day and the pillar of cloud by night and the pillar of the cloud by day is following the living church of God at this time. And those who understand will begin to grasp that more and more as these things happen in prophecy. And that their groups will not be understanding or explaining it the same way. One guy gets out and keeps saying over and over, well, Orion's going to be the king of the south. Going to be the king of the south. And some people writing his magazine, it's the king of the south. No, they're not. No, they're not. Iran is not even in the south. They're up north, northeast of Jerusalem. And a whole bunch of other reasons why they're not the king of the south that I won't need to go into now. But, you know, these guys blat off their mouth and they don't understand why. Because their whole way of life, some of them, is so different from God's way of life that He does not give them that guidance. A good understanding have they that do His commandments, plural, And therefore, we will tend to understand prophecy better. We will tend to understand the rest of the Bible better if we do those things. If I start turning aside, and Mr. Ames starts turning aside, and Mr. Crockett and Dr. Vanell and all their other leaders, Mr. Partin starts turning aside, then watch out. (laughs) But if we don't turn aside and we keep preaching that basic way of life, then you better realize we will be given greater understanding. And you will have a lot better opportunity, a lot more likelihood of being taken to a place of safety if you're part of the viable part of the church of God that's really preaching the full truth and doing the work of God. Whereas you're over somewhere else, you may not. 
Maybe along the way some of these people will really repent at the last minute. I hope they will. But there's no guarantee that they will if they keep just following their friends and following their friends or following Joe Blow over here or following Joe Blow over there. Various ministers around the country going off and starting the church over this or that or something else. Those are not really God's churches, any of those that I'm talking about that just go out. God has not used them. Most of them kind of get a little flurry of activity starting at first. And then after six months or two years, you never hear from them again. <laughs> it's like they never existed. It's like they never existed. They just blah, 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 get a few people excited or upset. Go out with them, a few of the other parts of the chaff, people that are not converted, that are weak, that follow them, and they're gone. No work, no powerful impact on the world, and maybe they keep a little feast of tabernacles with a few friends, or else they try to join with a few other little dissident groups so they don't feel so lonely, and do that for a few years. But they're not being used and not going to be used by Almighty God to preach the gospel to the whole world with power. They just are not. And they're not being trained as part of a team to be the army of God, to submit to government in the church of the living God. They're not like that. They're not learning those lessons. Brethren, we're preparing to be kings. God is training us to be part of a team. He wants us to learn to take orders and be responsive before we're allowed to rise up and to give orders. As they always teach in the military, which is true, you've got to learn to take orders before you give orders. Let's notice how the mind of God, the Bible is the mind of God, how one king disqualified himself. And we're called to be kings. So here's a very example, a very important example of that. Turn back to 1 Samuel. Turn back, if you would, with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15, a very familiar example to many of you. Samuel said to Saul, King Saul of Israel, 1 Samuel 15, verse 1, The Eternal sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed God's voice. Thus says the Eternal, I will punish what Amalek did to Israel. Remember how these Amalekites sneaked up and they picked off the weak ones, the ones that were stragglers and the women and the children and the sick people? They were cowards. They came at them from behind. And many scholars today feel that those people exist right now in the Middle East by the fruits and by other ethnic identity factors, that they are descendants of these very people. How he laid wait. And he said, now go and attack. This is God's command. You say, oh, this doesn't sound like the loving Jesus Christ. Yes, this was the loving Jesus Christ. That rock was Christ, the God of the Old Testament. He said, go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, infant, nurse and child, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Everybody, everything. Why? Because they're all headed that wrong direction. And when you understand what these pagans did at that time, and I'm not exaggerating, and I don't want to be sound nasty, but they were into perverted sex. Some of them were into sex with animals. It was better to kill those animals. They might have been around little, little children later if they'd been allowed to live. All kinds of polluted, rotten things they were into. God said, destroy them. As Sam, so Samuel gathered, or Saul gathered the people and numbered them, And he went to attack the Amalekites. But, verse 9, uh uh-oh, but, 
Saul and the people spared Agag, their king, and the best of the sheep and oxen, and so on. So the word of the Lord came to Samuel, verse 10, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Well, you know, some nice little old lady who think everything is sweet, she might say, well, poor Saul, he, he killed some of them and he, he didn't do so bad. He, he sort of tried. No, God said, you go and you destroy them all and you do what I say. Saul did not do that. Don't water down what God says. If God says you're to have different ministers and they're to appoint elders and they're to appoint deacons, you're not to have boating and shows that, don't disobey God's direct instruction and God's direct examples over and over. If God says you're to do this or that and the husband is the head of the family. We've had some women in the church who says, well, my husband's not going to tell me and my husband should obey me. No, you're not to do that. That is sin. That is almost like blasphemy to say that against everything that God indicates in the Bible. You'll never be in God's kingdom with that attitude. Never, never, ever. So go and attack Amalek and destroy them all. And Saul did not do that, but saved them. And so God was regretful. He's not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the eternal all night. He didn't dislike uh, Saul. He prayed for him. So then later he came to talk to Saul and Samuel said when you were little in your own eyes verse 17 he told this big tall you know six foot nine or more like seven foot six guy I suppose very tall head and shoulders above everyone else back there King Saul was when you were little in your own eyes were you not head of the tribes of Israel did not the eternal anoint you as king and then the eternal said go and destroy the Amalekites why didn't you obey the voice of the eternal? Why didn't you do what God said? Why did you swoop down on the spoil? And then Saul tried to reason. Well, I did do, but the people, he said, verse 21, oh, they, they had part in this. Yes, they did. They also liked to save the best of the sheep. But who was the boss? You see, God knew. Here was a real kingdom of the old style you know, where the king was in total authority. If the king had said, you destroyed them all, they would have destroyed them all. And so the ultimate responsibility was Saul's, not the people. And then Samuel said, verse 22, Has the ever-living one as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the eternal? That's what God wants. Do what I say. And other people say, well, no, we'd like to do it this other way. We like a different kind of government. We like a different approach to prophecy. We like a different approach to various other things. No, God says, do what I say if you're going to be a king. If you don't want to be a king in my kingdom, then go do what you want to. And you'll be, of course, punished later. You won't be in God's kingdom. To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the eternal, he has rejected you from being king. How do you get kicked out as being a king? Because you won't do what God said exactly the way he said it. Now, if you sincerely try and you come up short, you're not totally perfect, you know, on everything you think and say and do. That's a different matter. But here was a very clear indication that Saul knew what he was doing. And he just did not do it. Just a physical thing that was simple. Either do it or don't do it. 
And so God rejected him from being king because of that rebellion. Remember, this was Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. Christ was the rock of the Old Testament. He was the one dealing with Saul back here through his prophet Samuel. And it says in Hebrews 13, 8, Hebrews 13, 8, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not going to want us in His kingdom if we water things down. You say, well, that's kind of mean to say that this could happen. No, I can't help people by watering it down. Eventually, as we get closer to the end, these people have got to realize, and some of you have got to realize, and I've got to realize there are areas of my life that may come to light that I've watered things down or may be watering things down without realizing it. And I've got to bitterly repent. Bitterly repent and say, Father, forgive me. I made some horrible mistakes in certain situations, which I have. You know, not in running the work in a major way, but in my own life or with my family or other situations, yes. We've made mistakes and we've got to learn and be willing to acknowledge we've made mistakes. Not to say, well, we haven't made any mistakes and we get our feelings hurt if we, anyone thinks we've made mistakes. No, we've got to repent. Repent means to be terribly sorry and so sorry you turn around and quit. You turn around and go the other way. You don't just stop the wrong, but you start doing the right, as Mr. Armstrong explained. So what about those who say, no man will tell me what to do. I've had enough of Armstrongism. No man's going to tell me what to do anymore. How nice. (laughs) Sounds sensible, doesn't it? Except when you bring it down to the realistic level, if a man is the man of God and he is preaching the truth and he's your minister or your leader in the work of God and he tells you to do something, a spiritual matter or even a physical matter around the office within within the will of God, within the commandments of God, yes, you'd better do it. You'd better do it and be willing to take orders, be willing to be responsive, to be willing to be part of a team or else you won't be in God's kingdom. If you develop the attitude of rebellion, if you say, I'm just an independent Christian, sounds good. We're all just independent Christians out here, and we just each decide what we want to do. No, we do not. We're part of the church, which is the body of Christ, and we better be part of that body, a responsive part of that body, an active part of that body. So... You better learn to be willing to take orders or instruction from another man if that man is a true minister of God. How can Christ trust these people throughout all eternity out on some other planet or here and there? If in this life they said, well, no one's going to tell me what to do and I'll decide what to do and what not to do. No. How can he be sure that these people will do exactly what he commands? He can't be sure because they have not proven that in this life. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, brethren. Ephesians in your New Testament now. Again, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, the, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul writes, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you're called. Be worthy of God's mercy with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Put up with each other, yes? Maybe your boss at the work or your supervisor is not perfect. Maybe some of our local elders are not perfect. Maybe some of our evangelists are not perfect. Shocking as that may seem. (laughs) None of us are perfect. None of us. 
But if, again, if we're in the parameters of God's commandments and God's way, then respect that fact. God may be using us in spite of being human as long as the truth is being preached and the work is being done. Endeavoring to keep the unity, unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Try that. Don't say, I'm going to go out here and start a new group. I'm going to go out here and do this and that. There is one body, not all kinds of confused bodies fighting each other, one body, one spirit, one basic attitude, and that attitude is totally surrendered to God, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. God is to live and dwell in us through the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, Christ gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. And that's the highest rank we have in the church today, as far as we know, evangelists. And some pastors, we have those, and teachers or elders. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, which means the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith. We're not to say, I believe this and I have this opinion and go off. No, the church of God is to guide us in what we do, as it tells you back in Colossians 2. Why, if any man drudges you in eating or drinking or how to keep the Passover or how to keep a feast, no, the body of Christ is the one that does the judging. The body of Christ, not each individual member making up his own mind once you prove where God is working. And the instruction, of course, is within those parameters. But that's the important thing to realize. So there's one way of God, and there are pastors and teachers to edify the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith, verse 13, and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. Perfect man. Now, it can be translated mature, but it has a stronger meaning than in the English. It's not totally perfect as we Englishmen think of it, or we Americans But it means very mature, extremely perfect, extremely mature, I mean, very high level of character. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. My sermon is on the stature of Christ. You need to develop that stature in everything you think and say and do. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's our goal Not to be the compromising church, not to be the watering down church, not to be the lukewarm church, not to be the social club church, not to be the easygoing church that's friendly and nice but not doing all the other things that God commands us to do. No, we're to become like Christ in all these ways that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine but the trickery of men. See, people are often easily upset if they don't really study. Mr. Davis was telling us to really study and pray and meditate and fast. The church of God is to be noted for that, to really understand what God says and not be taken away by every wind of doctrine and trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in Him Uh, in all things, to him who is the head, Christ. We're to grow under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in every way and not be noted for watering down God's way of life. 
then God can say, I can put Mr. Smith or Mrs. Jones or Jack or Mary or Joanne or Eric or whatever your name is on this planet out here later in the future, and they can be a very God over that planet, and I can know forever because they've been all through their life willing to do what I say. They've prayed. They've cried when they've been wrong. They've repented. They've got up and gone on, and I've cleaned them up, fashioned them, and molded them, and now they've set their will to do what I want totally, and I can trust them now and forever. I can trust them now and forever. That's what God wants us to be. That's why these things are so important. And we cannot help each other by watering down these basic truths. We just cannot. Back in Judges, back in the book of Judges, brethren, chapter 21, which, of course, is the very last chapter of Judges, it says here and describes how after a great time of confusion, as you read, no doubt, if you've read through the book of Judges, they had all kinds of horrible, crazy things going on without a king in Israel, And then the Benjamites were kind of wiped out, and they didn't have enough wives. And even after doing some other things, they still didn't have enough wives. So they said in verse 20, To the children of Benjamin, go lie and wait in the vineyards and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, then come out from the vineyards and everyone catch a wife. Grab the woman, take her off. She's screaming and crying, and her parents are wanting you take her off, and she's your wife. How sweet. (laughs) Is this instruction? No. It's not instruction for what we ought to do. It shows what they did when they didn't have a strong leader. And the book concludes, and the chapter concludes, in those days there was no king in Israel, no strong leader. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. See, they thought it was right, I guess. That seemed to be the best thing they could think of carnally. But their whole way of life had been so much against God that he allowed one tribe to be virtually stamped out of Israel. Is it good to do what is right in our own eyes? No, (laughs) it's not. We've got to get on our knees and beg God, please show me what to do. And some of you did that as I did, not wanting to leave our former association, thinking we want to be loyal as long as we can. But now we see everything's being changed. What to do? And finally, God makes it very clear, very clear. And then you don't do what is right in your own eyes. You do what is right in God's eyes. And God blesses you in such a situation as that. But you've got to learn that lesson, not to do what is just right in your own eyes, brethren. And that's very, very important. Turn to Luke chapter 13, if you would, in your New Testament now. Luke chapter 13. And here in verse 23, Then one said to Jesus, Lord, are there few who be saved? And he said, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many will say, I will say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So many people. And then the master of the house will rise up and these people say, Well, you were here and we were sitting in the church of God and and we were sitting in this branch or that branch of the church and we heard some of the truth. And what will he say to them? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Verse 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brethren, this is serious stuff. I don't normally talk about that part of it, but God has that several times in the Bible, and we do need to understand it. We're not showing love to people by saying we're all the same and everybody's the same. No, we're not all the same. 
and the church of God here and the living church were not all the same. We have carnal people among us. We have people that are partly converted among us. We have people that are fully converted. Then we have outstandingly zealous people. And God knows exactly we don't all know each other. God does. He's testing us, testing us, seeing how much we're totally surrendered to do His will and that we really mean it. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. There will be weeping and gnashing. Let's understand that. We've got to take it seriously. God is not playing a little game. And it's not going to automatically turn out real good for everybody regardless. It's not. We've got to find out where Christ is primarily working, where the truth is primarily being taught, where the work is primarily being done, where the government of God is basically being carried out, and follow that and follow those servants of God as they follow Christ and put our hearts in the work of God and put our hearts individually in becoming really more like Christ in everything we think and say and do. In Luke 21, I'm sorry, Luke 22, this is Luke 22 and verse 39, just before the end of his life, just before Christ went out to die, he had these occasions coming out, verse 39, Luke 22, verse 39, he went to the Mount of Olives with his disciples as he was accustomed to, And when he came to the place, he said, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. Christ fell down on the ground, and even on his face, one of the accounts show, just crying out in agony, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. This hemlock, this poison cup, using an analogy here, the cup of death. Remove this horrible thing I'm going to have to go through. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And brethren, that's the whole thing God wants us to come to. Every one of us, I've got to come to that. You've got to come to that to really mean that and not water it down, not play word games, not play mind games to reason around it, but to see these key things I'm talking about and then do it. We must have this key attitude. This is the attitude God wants before He will make you and me a king in His kingdom. And the more perfectly we have this attitude, probably the higher reward we will have. We must learn to think as God thinks. How does God think? Well, most of it's revealed right in this book, right here. This is how God thinks, the mind of God, when you put it all together. We must learn to feel as God feels. I feel this way and that about music or about something else. No, we'd better find out what God feels. We must want what God wants. You can say, what do you mean by that? Well, anything. I'll give myself as an example. Some of you don't like that, but I better pick on me than someone else occasionally. If God wants me to die in the next year or two or five, is that what I should want? Yes. Really, it is, brethren. I mean that. Maybe I would be better off not to have to go through the trials, or maybe my job is up. You see, I think Mr. Gwynn was one of the most dedicated men, yet he died at a fairly young age. He served so much. But maybe God knew he'd fulfilled his race and some of the horrible things and people suffering or would get to him in a certain way. I don't know. But if God thinks it's better to let me go to sleep, should I want that? Yes, I really should. 
I should want that. I say, God, I mean it. My life is your life. You've bought and paid for me through Jesus Christ. That is what I should want. I don't mean to bring about a death wish, but I should be willing to do that. Very willing and want God's will to be done. And so should you. Whatever God wants is what you should want. And when we come to that place to think like God thinks, to feel like God feels, and to want what God wants in all these areas of life, then God can say, okay, (laughs) your mind is like my mind. Your attitude is like my attitude. You're surrendered to me like my son Jesus Christ. And I can trust you. I can trust you now and forever. Enter into the joy of my salvation. So we must grow under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and reflect the stature of Christ even in this attitude and in giving our lives wholly to God without compromise, without watering down, without playing games. If we want to fully have the stature of Christ and fulfill the purpose of for which we, all of us, you and I, are drawing breath.